0: Shalom shalom, you're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Arwen Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number one hundred and forty-seven. Let's open with a word of prayer. Aveenamal Kin, our Father, our King. Lord, we delight in calling you our God and our Father. We know that you are a gracious Heavenly Father a father who cares for his children and loves on them and and um uh, provides for them and protects them lord even in the midst of these difficult um pandemic times in which we live we can see your hand of providence in everything uh all around us and um and, uh the the, uh, the the way that you are healing us and that you're protecting us and um that you're providing for us and that you're continuing to demonstrate uh that your plans for us are sure and reliable we know that um, as we study your words of life, that we can find in them words of, of comfort, of truth, and of guidance. We know that this is the blueprint for our daily living. Your words are Our um, guide. They are the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path. They are the way in which we are to walk out our lives. We will orchestrate our lives according to what you have dictated for us, what you have explained to us and left for us. And we thank you that you've given the the great men of faith in the Bible to model this uh, lifestyle for us from the beginning to the end. And of course, the fullness of someone keeping the very words of God is seen in the person and work of Messiah Yeshua. He is the model of faith. He is the one that we want to imitate. He's the one that we want our lives to be modeled after, to, uh, to look like. When people see us, they don't They shouldn't see us. They should see Yeshua. And so, help us to be living witnesses of the living Word of God Himself. Thank you for the opportunity to share with the students and to connect with them across the miles. I pray that you'll be with us during the study tonight. Bless us and raise us up and strengthen us in your Word. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Bishim Yeshua Omain. Thank you so much everyone for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation to Tenuvald, the Harvest Congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. G-R-A-F-T-E-D-I-N.com. You can also visit us in person. We have opened our doors. Even though the pandemic seems to be picking up pace again, um, so far we haven't closed the doors. We haven't received any orders that we need to close. So we're just going to stay open until our own uh, local authorities explain otherwise. If you do find us online, however, as you can see on my screen right now, take notice of the link to the YouTube videos that we do upload week after week. Mark is um, plugging along through his sermons. He's on a a sermon set entitled Building the Church One Dinner at a Time, where he's talking about um, bringing people into your home and inviting them to sit around and just have some snacks or desserts or a light meal. And then, guess what? This is a perfect opportunity for you, the believer, to introduce Jesus to them, to explain the gospel to them. This is a great opportunity to witness the people around the dinner table, right? Table fellowship is a wonderful place to form relationships, not just with each other, but to form relationships with the living God. So, hope you guys are enjoying the sermon series that Mark is going through. Likewise, I've got my own uh, website at. Um, com. You can find me online at that's com. As you can see from all the links on my webpage, I've got quite a bit to offer. Click on the links and you'll usually find the written commentary. But as you keep exploring through my website, you'll find that I've got Audio commentaries, mp3 files, iTunes podcasts, and quite a few YouTube videos that I'm putting together these days as well. So if there's a commentary that I've written that has not been turned into a YouTube video, just give it a little bit of time and it will turn into one sooner or later. Speaking of YouTube videos, why don't you visit my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash the letter C for the word channel forward slash say Torah Ministries, all one word. And so, if you go to my uh, YouTube channel right now, you'll see, like, for instance, on the home page, um, you'll see all of the, um, the videos in the order that I uploaded them from the oldest to the newest but if you want to see the latest videos click on the video tab and that'll take you to the videos that I upload um, on an everyday basis and just like the channel says it is uploaded daily yeah uh channel v- videos are uploaded daily I'm quite the busy beaver uh, it's very rare that I'm not uploading something to either YouTube or to iTunes if you do go to my youtube channel do these five things for me number one subscribe to my youtube channel join the family number two hit the bell for notifications so that you're in the loop so that you know when I'm uploading YouTube videos. Number three, hit the thumbs up to show that you like and appreciate the content that I make available on my site and that I'm making available to you uh, week day after day, week after week. Number four, leave comments when you're watching the videos. Tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like. Tell me what you agree with, tell me what you disagree with. Tell me what you'd like to see on my channel and I'll see what I can do about it. And the last but not least, hit the little arrow that lets you share the content with your social media circles. Let's share in this Torah teaching uh, endeavor together, this Torah, learn, Torah learning uh, endeavor together, okay? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Let me give you some of the logistics so you can understand what we're dealing with. This is episode number 147, like I said in my prayer. July 17th, 2021 is the date of the live meeting. That's the USA date. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Notice we've changed the time. Um, we used to meet Monday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., but we've switched back over to Saturday late afternoon 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. I hope you can join us. The hour-long study is broken into two 30-minute segments. The first 30-minute segment is given over to the study called Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food Oh My, and we're in part 63 tonight. And segment two is given over to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua. We're going through review. We're really poised to just jump into paper three where we're going to deal with the Holy Spirit. But we're doing some review on paper two so that we can understand where we came from and get ready for that. We're in part 80 tonight. And then the feature YouTube video tonight will be... Um, from my short question, short answer live series. We're just going to keep going through those for the next few months. Should we celebrate the Jewish feasts as Christians? That's the video we're going to be looking at tonight. The important details, briefly, if you'd like to join us for these live internet studies, get access to Skype somehow. The easiest way, go to my website at tatesator.com, click on the banner at the very top of the page that says live internet studies. It's yellow. And then scroll down into the page where you can find the blue... Skype banner. Click that blue Skype logo and it'll take you right into the live study if I'm conducting it at that moment. Your browser will do all the work for you. So that's the easiest way to join Skype. Alrighty. And by the way, one last thing real quick. If you are on my website, take a brief moment and scroll down to the very bottom of the page in that black footer section where you can see some Hebrew writing and look at that little yellow donate button if the Lord is laying it on your heart to bless me financially and I could sure use the help during this difficult time while I'm out of a job this is the way that you can do it. Um, You can donate securely via PayPal using a credit card linked or a debit card or a bank account either way it's all secure so you don't have to worry about anything there. Uh, Your browser do the rest of the work. Just click the donate button and follow the prompts and go from there. And I do sure appreciate um, your generosity as I like to say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Romans 14, Unplugged Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my! We are in the study, and we finally finished the introduction, background, and historical audience. We talked at length about the fact that christianity in the first century was an offshoot of judaism and it's so important that we make that connection because it's so easy for us to think that based on for instance the historical account of the um expulsion of the jews from rome that took place shortly before paul wrote his letter to them i would say late forties early fifties is when that um expulsion from emperor claudius took place some something like that that's what most historians put the time frame as but Unfortunately, we are so easy to take that expulsion as an indication that God is no longer dealing with the Jewish people as a group and that he's turning to the um, turning to the Gentile Christians and that the Gentile Christians don't need to concern themselves with the um, uh, Jewish people as a whole and so that would be a very bad way to interpret your Bible so what we're doing is we're looking at the background and historical information of the expulsion and how it impacted the Jewish community, yes, it probably decimated them. However, it did not, I believe, leave the um, Christians in a place where they couldn't have a viable Jewish community to connect to. In fact, I believe that we could kind of downplay the expulsion a bit, uh, so as to say that it wasn't all of the Jewish people that were expelled, but it, rather it was all of those who were the troublemakers or all of those in a certain region, maybe a certain uh, city in Rome or a certain um, neighborhood or such of Rome. Um, go back and read through the uh, introduction information in my commentary available at takeshator.com and gain the perspective that I um, presented, especially using the the historical account as told by Mark Nanos, a Jewish historian um, who believes that uh, there was still a very strong Jewish presence there, so much so in Rome that Paul could write to the Gentile Christians and expect them to stay connected to the Jewish synagogues. So, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to begin to turn into my own study and i need to rehash some of the um scope and style of the study as you can see on my screen right now i've got these bullet points let me just read down through these real quick i won't spend a lot of time in this part tonight this will just kind of set us up for what we're going to be continuing to look at but this is just kind of review reminder um, i had these bullet points written in my notes about uh the background material and the overall scope and style of the study let me just remind you of where i was going i took chapter 14 of Romans and I broke it down into these um, uh, 10 or so, uh, what do I have there? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 bullet points. And this is my own uh, kind of um, outline, Uh, nothing really fancy, just the topics that I wanted to ask. And I put them all in the form of questions. So, in verse 1, Paul talks about the weak in faith, and so I asked the question, who are the weak in faith? And We talked about that already weeks and months ago but we're going to just kind of keep reminding ourselves of this idea who are the weak in faith uh what are we looking at um and why does it impact us for 21st century understanding of the bible what if i were to tell you let me back up what if i were to tell you that the weak in faith are probably not christian jews keeping torah but believing in jesus in other words messianic jews who who still keep torah what if i tell you contrary to popular christian theology of the day the weak in faith are not Messianic Jews. What if I were to tell you that instead there's a high probability that the weak in faith are instead unbelieving Jews who are nevertheless interacting with the Jewish and Christian communities who are believers as they discuss the topics of who Jesus really is. Is he the long-awaited Messiah that we've been waiting for? Speaking from the unbelieving Jewish perspective or non-Christian Jew in that day, they would have had a a faith in God, they would have expressed a monotheistic faith in God, and they would have demonstrated a loyalty to God's Torah. This would have been the national Jew of Paul's day. However, he may not have articulated a belief in Jesus as Messiah, but if he wasn't hostile to the idea, then he was open to having dialogue with Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles about the prospect of Jesus being the Messiah. These are the weak in faith that I believe that Paul wants the Gentile Christians, the brothers, the Messianic Jews to continue to interact with, to pray for, and to do what they can to try and bring them and win them over to a believe in Jesus as Messiah. How are they going to do that if they're breaking up and forming their own communities? How are those Christian communities going to continue to reach out to those synagogue Jews if they're separate from the synagogue? Aha! That's the challenge. I believe that the that Paul wanted the Gentile Christians to stay connected. And indeed, there was not the split between church and synagogue in Paul's day like we experience it today. Let's keep reading. The second bullet point deals with chapter 14, verses 2-4. through What is the contrast between anything and vegetables? Most of us are taught that Romans 14 represents Paul explaining that, really, like we read in verse 14 and 18, 14-18 through later on, really, um... Kosher requirements, keeping kosher, keeping the biblical dietary lifestyle, all of that really has been set aside and relaxed in the truth of Messiah, in the fullness of Jesus, um, uh, death and uh, on the cross. Um, Jesus did what we couldn't do. He fulfilled the law, and so we don't really have to worry about that anymore. That's what really taught Um, Moses has been filled up to its fullness. Uh, The law has been fulfilled. It's been set aside, relaxed, done away with. Um, And now we're under a new law, a better law, the new covenant. And so in this discussion, it's not necessary to keep kosher. It's not even really advantageous to make a difference between clean and unclean. So really, you can eat anything you want. Um, But there's still going to be people out there who have this... um, Kind of suspicion about what's clean and what's not clean. And so, no, how much more the Jews in Paul's day who were still raised with kosher issues, they're going to want to keep dietary laws uh, even though they're Christians. And so, what do we, Gentile Christians, do about all that? Well, that's the normal discussion. But what if I already tell you that actually it's probably not a kosher discussion at this point where Paul's talking about the contrast between anything and vegetables I think it's better understood from the perspective of fasting and non-fasting eating and not eating on certain days and we'll get to that those days in a second so the idea about eating anything and eating vegetables has to do with yes clean and unclean but It also is related to fasting, and we'll look at that in a bit. So I think that's probably the better context of this particular part of Paul's letter. We'll rehash some of that as we go on. Uh, We're certainly going to have to deal with it because, as I understand, chapter 14 as a whole, one of the primary contexts is actually food issues. Table fellowship is one of the primary issues of chapter 14. And we can tell this by looking at some of my bullet points. So look at the next one. In chapter 14, verses 5-9, through I have the question, are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? Again, we've been told that the issue at hand is Paul discussing Saturday versus Sunday. That's what most Christian Bible pastors, commentaries, seminarians, professors, theologians, they're all going to focus on the idea that Paul is really saying it really doesn't matter what day you worship God. God really doesn't need to be tied down to a special day. All days are alike. Every day is really special to God. The, the, the most important point is that you meet with God. I'm not really trying to minimize some of those truths. It is true that God is bigger than any one day. And it is also true that God accepts you on, for whatever day you worship to the degree that God accepts you based on who you are in Messiah. God doesn't um, uh, limit you based on the uh, doorway that you come through when it comes to uh, worship days. In other words, let me say it this way, it is true that I can meet with God any day of the week. He is available, right? He makes himself available to me as his son uh, to meet with him any day and any time. I mean, right now, at this very moment, I could cry out to God and have an audience with God right now. I don't have to wait to the end of the week or something like that. However, however, biblically, when we're talking about biblical um, principles that have been already established by God himself, the Sabbath is not one of those debatable topics. Therefore, it's highly unlikely that Paul's having a discussion of Sabbath versus Sunday this earlier on, this early on in his letter and this early on in Christian history. The the debates of Saturday versus Sunday are probably not going to take place for um, a few more decades, if not um, maybe a hundred or two hundred or three hundred more years. We know that formally speaking the Christian church is gonna to, going to make a um a formal decision on the worship days, um, you know, when we get to our councils and things like that, 300s, 400s, mid-300s, such like that. But right now, this is just a bit too early to have a Sabbath versus Sunday debate. What if I were to tell you that instead what Paul is probably talking about are fast days versus non-fast days? And guess what? Fast days aren't mandated in the Bible. We know that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. I believe the biblical count uh, indicates that it was on um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, something like that, or Mondays and Thursdays, I can't remember. But um, nevertheless, it was simply a tradition according to whatever denomination of Judaism you were practicing. And so even the Didache, which is a surviving um, early Christian document, attests to the fact that fast days were questionable or debatable Topics. So I think that's what Paul's referring to. This plugs it right back into the previous verses about food issues, anything, vegetables, uh, and things like that. And it also plugs it into the other parts of the passage where Paul's talking about clean and unclean and um, and, and other topics related to food and table fellowship. Fasting and non-fasting. Those are the topics of debate. What one man picks as one day special and the other man. Decides that it's not special. I think that's really what's going on. Um, the next set of verses that we have in my bullet points, uh, verses ten to thirteen of chapter fourteen. Who is the brother? We talked about this, the kind of the equivocation or the ambiguity of this term brother in the New Testament. Keep in mind that when Paul wrote his letters, and remember Paul wrote most of the New Testament, Paul began to use terminology that now has become normative in Christian circles. That is the term brother indicates jews and gentiles in messiah brother christians however this word was already in use by the jewish communities before the rise of Christianity and the and, um, the the influx of Gentile Christians into the Jewish communities. The Jewish communities had been using the word brother. The Greek word would be adelphos or something to that effect. Adelphoi, adelphos, the plural brothers, adelphoi or something. delphon. I can't remember what the root word is. I think it's adelphos. But achi in the Greek, the uh, achim or achi, uh, your brother, these terms would have been in use in the Christian, in the Jewish communities, to refer to fellow brother Israelites or fellow Jews, um, fellow brother monotheistic God-believing Israelites. And so, for Paul to come along and use a term that um, borrow a term and apply it to Christian communities must have been a kind of a specialized term until it became more of a broad use. Here's what I suppo- Here's what I um um uh, purport or propose. When we're reading through the Bible, the New Testament part of our Bible, the term brother is most naturally going to refer to brother Christians. That's just the fact, and you can ver- you can corroborate that by any uh, using any concordance that the word brother most often refers to Christians. However, what I don't want us to do is lose sight of the fact that brother also can um, connect Christians to the greater brotherhood of Israel israelites or hebrews of which paul was right just because paul was a christian doesn't mean he stopped being a hebrew he didn't stop being a jew he didn't stop being an israelite and so paul can look and talk and speak to hebrews and israelites and fellow jews as his brothers and we can understand the brotherhood of israelites but don't you think paul would also want his brother christian gentiles to also connect to the israelites as covenant brothers even though they didn't believe in jesus they still had they the national Israelites had a connection to the one god of israel the scriptures of israel the land of israel and many of them were searching for the messiah of israel they certainly had um loyalty to the torah of israel and paul himself was a lifelong torah keeper so i would think that paul would want the brother gentile christians to retain their connection to their brother Israelites at a broad level and to continue to try to reach out to them with the gospel of who Messiah truly is. And so that's where we uh went with that discussion on brother let's keep reading through down through some of this we're just going to look at these bullet points and then we'll call this uh uh, quits tonight for this section in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 14 i asked the question what exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply since we've already discussed all the other bullet points up to this point in my studies when we, uh, starting I believe next week, we'll actually turn t- to this particular bullet point. What, does it, what exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply? We're going to have this lengthy discussion for the following weeks uh, over um, clean and unclean, kosher, unkosher. It'll be a food related type of um, discussion for starting next week and, f- and following. Uh, we'll just keep talking about kosher for a little while. Alright, let's look at the next uh, verse, verse 19 of chapter 14. How can we make for peace and mutual building? And I've got quote, air quotes around the phrase, peace and for mutual building, because that's a quote from Paul himself. If we as Jews and Gentiles are to be worshiping together as believers in Messiah, how can we continue to um, strengthen our communities if, as well known by today's standards, we've got so many differences of should we follow Torah, should we abandon Torah, should we keep the feast, should we not keep them, do we have to keep kosher, do we not, is it Sabbath, is it Sunday, Messianic versus non-Messianic, how can we actually have peace and mutual building within the body today we've got so many differences we're going to talk something at some length about um that particular challenge uh, that faces the body of messiah today i'm not saying that i have all the answers but i think we'll have some interesting um details to bring to the table of discussion when we get to that particular part of my commentary in uh chapter 14 verses 20 and 21 i asked the question what does everything is indeed clean mean this is going to connect us once again back to the kosher d- uh, discussion as paul brings up this topic um table fellowship um but it'll be a little bit broader than that um it should include uh topics related to not just table fellowship and food related issues and clean unclean we'll use that we'll take that opportunity to also talk about other matters of the bible that where we're talking about clean on unclean idolatry um you know maybe um of the laws of nida of the menstru- menstruation of women um and uh, other things that render people unclean um certain acts and actions touching the a dead corpse uh corpse defilement right um all kinds of topics related to clean and unclean we won't be exhaustive but as it's pertaining to uh, our 21st century Christianities today in Messianic communities, uh, how can we make sense of all these uh, seemingly obsolete purity laws? We might even bring up, um, bring in uh, the issues of uh, animal sacrifices and how that uh, they were used in that day to restore ritual purity. Uh, well, we don't have animal sacrifice today, so if there, if ritual purity is an issue, right, clean and unclean, how do we deal with it? Um, how do we return to a state of Ritual purity, if indeed we are contracting ritual impurity. Those are some of the things we might talk about when that time comes. And then, last bullet point in that list, and we'll draw our study to a close tonight with this. In chapter 14, the last two verses, 22 and 23, I ask the question how do we keep the faith we have between ourselves and God? Paul concludes part of his letter with this challenge of keeping our faith to ourselves. Well, on the face of it if we were to misunderstand paul's statement we would have paul saying don't even witness anybody we know that can't be the case because that would cause the bible to contradict itself um you remember we talked about formal contradictions in our trinity study We know that Yeshua commissioned the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, Matthew chapter 28. Well, this commission um, applies to us as well today in 21st century circles. We are still commanded to take our faith and share it with other people around the world. So when Paul says keep the faith you have between yourself and God, that cannot certainly apply to the gospel faith. But if it doesn't, then what does he talk? Th- what is he referring to? Is he referring to keeping kosher issues, Sabbath issues, dietary issues, uh, festival issues, you know, Torah-related issues? Is he talking about keeping that to yourself? Well, I don't think that's the case either. Um, so you know, we're going to talk about what does that mean. So that'll be a bit of a, of a challenging section as well when we get to it and basically that'll do it for our study for tonight in romans chapter 14. we're not going to deal too much with um the rest of the chapter uh when like i said when the time comes next week we'll uh jump into i believe we're ready for this bullet point right here what exactly does nothing is unclean enough self imply i think that's where we're going to go next week okay and that'll do it for romans 14 unplugged feast and fast and food oh my Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Last week we left off talking about Dr. Tuggy and his form of Unitarianism, which of course doesn't leave room for one being known as God broken up into three persons, also known as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Dr. Tuggy, as you know, takes the um analytic approach he's an analytic theologian so in his analysis of these topics of trinity of the different trinity theories that are out there um, it becomes difficult for him to accept when we're talking about identity and selves of persons and beings how in the world the bible could actually present the being known as god having multiple selves, if we're talking about the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, we introduced the idea known as Mysterian Theology, or the Appeal to Mystery. You can see on my screen right now, I've got the uh, title heading for this review section, Is Yeshua God an Appeal to Mystery? Most of you who are Trinitarian Christians are going to make this type of appeal. And so with that, last week we introduced... The thoughts of uh, a Trinitarian theologian by the name of Dr. James Anderson of the School of Divinity of Edinburgh. And what's really nice about Dr. Anderson's approach that we're going to look at tonight is that He, like Dr. Tuggy, takes a very logical approach. He's aware that in the various Trinity models out there, that we can sometimes end up with um, what seems like formal contradictions, what seems like logical contradictions. Remember we talked about the logical problem of the Trinity. Uh, One plus one plus one doesn't equal one, right? In, In everyday math, it equals three. And so, how can three gods not equal... How can God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit not equal three gods? I mean, it sounds like tritheism through and through. And indeed, when uh, Dr. Tuggy um, debated Dr. Brown, that's I, I seem to remember that that's the impression that Dr. Tuggy gets of Dr. Brown's theology, is that there's three gods, uh, or, or some form of modalism, where God's wearing three different modes of expressions, or masks, or, or representations of himself, or something like that. Either way, um, unless we are able to Uh, deal with the language of the Bible and make some sense of it, Um, really, Dr. Tuggy's approach seems very logical, and that's why so many people abandon Trinity, in my opinion, and embrace some form of monotheistic Unitarianism like Dr. Tuggy. Let's look again at Dr. James Anderson and begin to allow him to explain that there is a way for us to appreciate the sometimes confusing and challenging language of the Bible using an approach he calls Macru. So let me just pick up where we left off last week, and I'll read this for you. Dr. James Anderson of the School of Divinity of Edinburgh favors the approach, speaking of Trinity, of disambiguating, that is, trying to unravel the, um, the approach that allows for, um, confusing language or, um, ambiguity, um, uh, what do we, what do we say, um, uh, equivocation, um, trying to make sense of, of the, the, the language of the Bible and how it impacts us, he likes to try and dim, disambiguate, in other words, try to remove the, the um, some of the confusion, uh, using nomenclature that is referred to by theologians as Mysterian. Now, of course, many of you who are Trinitarian Christians, myself included, <clears throat> we've been raised to um, understand that the Bible presents God as Trinity, yet... It challenges us as humans because it's beyond the scope of our comprehension of how one being can be three persons. So one of the answers that we have been taught to provide skeptics, such as Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Iglesiani and Christo, Mormons, um, Orthodox Jews, um, islam uh, muslims things like that are um we are we're, we're taught to explain them well of course god is one and three and it's simply a mystery and so we kind of default to the idea that there's no way we can explain it i'm not trying to say that that's not a bad i'm not trying to say that that is a bad idea i'm simply trying to say that it's not always an acceptable answer for many skeptics they want to know well So I guess the Bible just says, "No, too bad you can't understand it, uh, deal with it. Well, God is beyond us, right? If we're going to accept a mysterious, if we're going to believe in a miraculous God, then at some point in time, we're going to have to um, contend with the mysterious. Miraculous and mysterious sometimes go hand in hand. I go on to say in my commentary, Dr. Anderson suggests that the mystery, quote-unquote, bound up in the language of the Bible in regards to understanding God's relationship to his son, Jesus, may in fact be qualified and expressed as Macru. Now, I say in my commentary that this is a proprietary term that I believe that Anderson himself coined. So, we've got this... um, uh, Term, MacRue, M A C R U E. And I think Dr. Anderson is the uh, originator of it. I could be wrong, but nevertheless, let's have him explain it. We are going to examine the biblical possibilities of this actual biblical term, mystery, a bit further down uh, into this commentary that I've written. But for now, I say, let's allow Dr. Anderson to explain this MACRU acronym in his own words. So, what does MACRU mean, and is it helpful in understanding Trinity? And is it helpful in explaining Trinity to those who are non-Trinitarians? Let's find out. Here's what Dr. Anderson has to say. My basic proposal is that genuine theological paradoxes, such as the, uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, are best understood as, are you ready for it? Merely apparent contradictions resulting from unarticulated equivocation, a.k.a. MACRU. So in case you didn't catch it, the acronym is formed from the phrases merely for the M, apparent for the A, Contradictions for the C, resulting for the R, the from isn't represented in the acronym, unarticulated for the U, and equivocation for the E. So in case you're wondering, what is equivocation? Let's just click my little definition and you can find out. According to the definition, let me try that again. There we go. Equivocation is a noun, and it's the, the dictionary definition is the use of ambiguous language to conceal the truth or to avoid committing oneself. So, ambiguity is sometimes referred to as equivocation. Equivocation and ambiguity are, are uncertainty or vagueness, uh, ambivalence, indecision, doubt, uh, doubt, uh, beating. These are just the thesaurus definitions that we can see on my screen right now. Now, what I think Dr. Anderson is trying to communicate to us is that as we read through the Bible, we find uh, statements and sayings and words and terms that at face value can either be understood one way or another way. And without the benefit of context of either the speaker or the surrounding circumstances or the surrounding uh, verses or chapters or books or even Bible as a whole, then we may not properly understand what the terminology is trying to convey. Let's give you some examples. If we say that, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1, at the very end of that verse, where John says the Word was God, if we entertain a discussion where the term God in that verse means that Jesus is, or I should say, the Word is the being known as God, Well, then, if we try to, with the same conversation at Trinitarians, explain that Jesus, who is this word that became flesh, Jesus is God, and we spit that out of our mouth, Jesus is God, or we see it on a bumper sticker. Well, then, because we've already defined the word God in this verse as the being known as God, then we're trying to say that Jesus is the being known as God. Well, if this is the case, and we already know that Jesus is the Son, then aren't we, in fact, saying that the Son is God? Well, I think we are saying that. But, if we already affirm that the Father is God, then if we affirm that Jesus is God and that the Son is God, then can't we, using the same logic, if we keep following through, can't we say that the Father and the Son are the same being? Or the Father is the Son? Well, as Trinitarians, I would hope we would say, no, we're not saying that they are the same. And then we have to fill in the blank with an extra word that actually John doesn't use. We have to say the Father and Son are not the same. We can't say God because John already used the word God. So instead, we fill in with a different word as Trinitarians. We say the Father and the Son are not the same person. That's what we do. So what's the demonstration of my example here trying to explain? It's trying to demonstrate that there is a bit of equivocation or um, ambiguity to the word God there in the verse, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was, the word, the word was God. The equivocation comes from the fact that John's phrase, John's word God there, the Greek word thaos, can mean one thing to one believer, one Bible uh, reader, and another thing to another Bible reader. In fact, on the other side of that argument, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was theos, the Word was, let's throw in the word, deity instead of the word God. Instead of being the being known as God, we can say that the word was full deity. We can turn it into an adjective, a quality of the being that the word is. So the word is, whatever the word is, God is. And whatever God is, the word is. So we're talking about a quality of existence. We're talking about an ontological argument there instead of an argument of identity. So we can have Unitarians affirm that the word was God Uh, if they simply believe that the Word is the being known as God, and nothing more. One identity, one self, nothing more. But Trinitarians are of the impression and understanding and belief that the Word, the eternal Word, who became flesh, i.e. the Son took on flesh, the Son of God is full deity. He is God in the sense that he shares the essence of God and the nature of God. But we do not, take the logical or illogical leap of saying that the Son is the Father. Because when it comes to personhood, we don't overlap the two, at least Trinitarians don't. There are some forms of, I understand, um, oneness Pentecostalism that do, in fact, um, displace God the Father with God the Son, so that Jesus actually displaces God the Father and in their uh, theology, if I'm understanding them correctly, actually Jesus is the Father, something to that effect. So, uh, this is the challenge that we're presented with. The Bible uses language in places that, outside of the context or the explanation, we don't have the benefit of John's um, uh, talking to us directly and explaining, uh, okay, when I say God, I mean essence, not being, or person, not being, or something like that. Um, I mean, later on down in the passage, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that there's a relationship uh, between this eternal Word and the Son of God, a.k.a. Uh, Jesus himself. But again, Orthodox Trinitarians or Trinitarians who, are, who branch from the, some original Orthodox forms of Trinitarian theology before uh, we had to form all the creeds and the Catholicism came in, And I don't mean Orthodox Christianity that also formed later on. I'm not talking about that. When I use the word Orthodox, I just mean it in small o, as in Biblical Trinitarian. Meaning, I'm of the belief that the Bible does teach Trinitarian doctrine in the small Orthodox o sense of the word. In other words, it's completely acceptable to understand God as Trinity because of his complex nature. But I also believe that the Bible presents equivocations that, When left unspoken or unexplained or, how does Dr. Anderson say, unarticulated, right? Articulated means refers to explaining it. If it's unarticulated, then we end up with what seems to be contradictions. But, Dr. Anderson reminds us, they're not really contradictions. They're merely apparent contradictions. Aha! So... Let's keep reading Dr. T- uh, Anderson's explanation, and we'll see if this makes any sense. He goes on to say, The logical conflict in question, and when we're talking about uh, discussions of Trinity, and this is from a later theologian's perspective. The Bible itself doesn't have contradictions, but when we have discussions in Trinity circles, Unitarian versus Trinitarian discussions, we end up with... Um, logical conflicts. But Dr. Anderson says the logical conflict in question when we're talking about biblical topics known as the Trinity they're rarely if, if ever explicit. In other words, the Son is God and the Son is not God. We don't find that language in the Bible. We don't have contradictory statements like um, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then the very next uh, chapter says in the beginning Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that would be really weird if we read it that way. Instead we have language that hints at or reveals the complex nature of the fact that the the Word made flesh, the Word, the eternal Word, was with God in the beginning. And it tells us this in John, but then when we read Genesis 1.1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we have to keep in the back of our mind that actually, when it said God there in Genesis, this must allow for this Word who's not mentioned in Genesis, but nevertheless must be there. This Word, who is Yeshua, even though his name isn't Yeshua at the time of the uh, writing of Genesis. This word, nevertheless, is co-creating with God, or is the agency of creation, if you want to describe it that way, co-creating. Um, it's one God doing the create, creating, as if, again, we're talking about mysterious language. So, don't expect the Bible to come out and say, Well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then later on it say, In the beginning Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Instead, we have passages like Paul explaining in Colossians and pl- other places, uh, all things were created by him and for him and through him, and things like that. John telling us that with him, without him, nothing was created that, that is created. Nothing existed that does exist. Things like that. So we fill in the blanks where explicitly the Bible doesn't come out and say certain things. Dr. Anderson says, speaking of the logical conflicts that we have in our later discussions, um, it may constitute a formal contradiction as seems to be the case with the set of claims that a leading analytic Christian philosopher, I think he's referring to Dr. Tuggy there, analyzes. So, um, in Dr. Anderson's opinion, what we simply have are arguments or logical conflicts in the minds of humans, but the Bible really isn't in conflict with itself. That's really important for us to walk away with. Dr. Anderson believes, and I agree with him, that the Bible doesn't contradict itself and therefore it has no logical conflict from one part of the Bible to the other part of the Bible. So, when Trinitarians explain that the Old Testament God is the Creator and yet the New Testament um, Son is the Creator, that's not a logical contradiction to say that the Father created in the in the Old Testament and that the Son created the New Testament. Trinitarians are not trying to present logical contradiction or conflict. They're simply trying to affirm that the Bible is mysterious in the way it presents itself, in the language. We don't always have everything right up front and in our face explained to us. Again, honestly, if you read through Genesis one one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there's no mention of the eternal eternal word there. There's no mention of Jesus um, uh, as the agency of creation. And you would have to honestly admit that. And therefore, it makes sense for Unitarians or monotheistic um, uh, religious people to say, "Well, we're just going to believe with what the Bible says in the Old Testament. There is no Jesus that shows up there, and things like that." Okay, so um, that that's really what we're talking about. Dr. Anderson continues. Let's keep reading here. Um, in other cases, the perceived contradiction. Notice he doesn't say that there is a contradiction. He just says it's perceived. The perceived contradiction will be merely implicit. But no less awkward for that. So, sometimes it seems like there is an implied contradiction in the Bible, right? I mean, unless you read the New Testament accounts of the creation and other types of places where we have this heavy linking of the identity of the being of of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, the word, the eternal word, with uh, the creator God and things like that. Unless you read the New Testament, you are going to be left scratching your head saying this simply cannot be uh, uh the way it is it can't be that jesus is creator if god has already been established as a sole creator i mean recall places like isaiah in the the early 40s 42 43 somewhere around there where god says you know i am the only god there is i'm paraphrasing i'm the only one there is there is none else and you know when i created there was no one there with me uh are there any gods i know of none things like that so um That's what we're really kind of dealing with. Dr. Anderson continues, Moreover, these apparent contradictions in our formulations of Christian doctrine, keep in mind of of the creeds that we've um, created uh, later on after the Bible was written, they will be the product of theological theorizing from source data that also strikes us as implicitly contradictory. So... We've got our creeds. We've got our theological formulations, our our theological statements. You can, you can read about them on your Bible, ba- ba- Bible. Um, uh, I suppose your uh, church web pages and things like that. Uh, does the Bible contradict itself? No. But when we make um, uh, creeds. Well, we're fallible, and so it's possible we could make confusing language there, right? We talk about um, uh, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And we use the word God three times. We're trying to talk about the being who expresses deity fully across the persons and yet those who are not um of that persuasion, you know unitarians, are going to just see through the word three they're going to see the word god showing up three times. And so that's really kind of what Dr. Anderson I think is trying to alert us to. He goes on to say, after all, the Bible nowhere makes any explicitly or formally contradictory statements about god's triune nature right again we don't have something when we're talking about formally contradictory that's like having a verse saying in the beginning god the father created heavens and the earth and then maybe another part of the bible where it says in the beginning god the son um let's see how can we make it formally contradictory um God is creator. The son is creator. There, I'm sorry. The father is creator, in one passage, and then another passage says the son is creator, and then a third passage that says therefore the father is the son. Okay, the conclusion to my syllogism here would be contradiction. The, to say that the father is creator is not contradictory. To say that the son is creator is not contradictory either. But to say that, therefore, the Father is the Son, well, that's a contradiction, right? That doesn't work. Because now we're confusing two selves, and that's where people like Dr. Tuggy would, co- would step in and cry foul. And I would too. So, um, we have to we have to allow the Bible to speak for itself. It says what it says. It says the Father created, it says God is the Creator, and we also see verses that explain unambiguously that the Son created, right? And yet that's not contradictory um because we understand that the son is full dairy deity he's fully god he's fully he, he's he's truly god and truly man i don't want to say 100% god and 100% man cuz that that's contradictory in the math also 100% plus 100% equals 200% and that's not really what god or yeshua is so um but god, the father is fully god and the Son is fully God, or truly God, we can use those. I think that's how the Confessions, um, uh, term, that's the terminology they use, fully and fully, or truly and truly, something like that. Uh, Dr. Anderson continues, um, So, the Bible doesn't make any explicitly or formally contradictory statements about God's training nature, but rather, what it does is, the Bible supplies copious data, that is a lot, of data about God, from which we infer the sort of neat, succinct set of statements which go on to serve as formal statements of orthodox trinitarian belief such as and he gives an example the athanasian creed so that's really what happens is we know that the bible doesn't have all the extra language that the creeds um, represent but we also admit that the creeds become necessary for us to articulate articulate where the Bible leaves out articulation, right? We're back to that limit Im- information limitation concept all over again. The fact that the Bible doesn't give us all of the language that we would prefer to have, but nevertheless, it is complete in its revelation. At the end of the day, the Bible is all we really do need. Don't get me wrong. The creeds are helpful, but they are put together by fallible men. The Bible itself is infallible in its original autographs. As I understand it, God's Word doesn't contain fallacy. Um, yes, copyist errors and scribal errors and uh, scribal omissions and swaps and emendations. And, uh, yes, we have those types of things, different manuscript families. Okay, I understand all that. But the point I'm trying, I'm trying to make is that at the end of the day... Base your belief on what the Bible gives you, and if there are not, if there's not enough articulated information for the Bible to give you a proper understanding of God, well, then keep digging, keep digging, um, and pray pray about uh, understanding and affirming that which you can't fully even understand. I mean, at the end of the day, God is miraculous, A.K.A. God is mysterious. Let's conclude our study tonight with just this quote from uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Anderson, and we'll pick this up again next week. Dr. Anderson says, Furthermore, these doctrinal inferences are not conducted in an epistemic vacuum, so to speak. So when we say epistemic, let me just focus on that word for a second so you can see what I'm talking about. Epistemic is related to the word epistemology. Epistemic is an adjective. Uh, The dictionary definition is that epistemic is related to uh, knowledge or to the degree of its validation. So when we're talking about the subject of epistemology, we're talking about a branch of science that deals with seeking to separate fact from fiction and uncover the origins of truth. How can we get at what is truly true and understand where it comes from? Um, How can we affirm truth and separate it away from uh, hearsay and and fiction and rumor and bad uh, information. In today's parlance we would say how do we separate the real news from... you guys ready for it? The fake news, right? Fake news. There's that phrase. So by today's terms we have fake news which means there must be real news if there's a presence of fake news. Well this would be an exercise of epistemology, separating fake news from real news or something like that. Dr. Andrews is trying to alert us to the fact that when we put together when the tree, when the creeds were put together, they weren't simply formulated in the opinions of the minds of the people who formulated them. Obviously, and here's what he's gonna say they, speaking of um, the doctrinal inferences that we read about in our creeds, they draw on a considerable amount of extra-biblical background knowledge and prior experience about the concepts and categories employed by the biblical text. So the creeds are based on what the Bible teaches and they're based on the discussions of the topics of the Bible so that the creeds at the end of the day are trying to closely uh, articulate the truths of the Bible, even adding words that the Bible doesn't use, right? We've got the homoousius and, and the, the, all these kinds of words. Even the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible critics are fond of reminding me but nevertheless we're trying to supply extra terminology that is rooted in the concepts and categories that are employed by the biblical text dr anderson continues which would include natural intuitions about conceptual entailments and metaphysical necessities so even dr tuggy who's a unitarian in his uh theological theorizing in his um in his analytical theorizing about trinities and unity, you know, is God one, is he three, and things like that, he has to employ different language and concepts that are extra-biblical, but nevertheless are rooted in the concepts and uh, metaphysical necessities that the Bible would uh, um, hint at or um, point us towards or or orient us towards. So, um, you know, God himself doesn't come out In the first few verses of of the Bible and say, I am God and here's what I'm made up of. This is the ontological breakdown of what I am. Now, God doesn't do that for us. So, we come along as humans and have discussions on the issues of Trinity like we're doing right now. Dr. Anderson concludes in this little section. We'll pick this up next week, so don't worry. He says, as we will see, this fact has significant epistemic Consequences. Again, epistemic is related to the idea of searching for truth, searching for um, knowledge. Uh, Let me just pull up the word again. It's related to knowledge or to the degree of its validation. Um, So we have a statement of truth, a truth statement, a fact statement, and it's our job to investigate. Is it real news or is it, you ready for it? Here's our phrase again. Is it fake news? All right. And that'll do it for it. exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We'll pick this up again next week, okay? Let's turn to the liturgy for tonight. Remember last week we looked at a few passages out of the uh, book of Exodus three verses from Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 through 15 and I read the English only and I said I was going to read the Hebrew tonight. And then next week what I'll do is I'll break down some of the nuggets out of the Hebrew out of this fascinating dialogue between God and Moses about God sending Moses before the people of Israel so that he can then go before the Pharaoh and explain to the Pharaoh, let my people go, they are my people. But before Moses goes to the Pharaoh, he wants to know, as he goes before the children of Israel and the elders, who am I going to say has sent me? Right? They're going to ask me. You, you're being sent, but who's the one that's sending you? What's his name? And so this is the interesting dialogue. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So let's just look at the Hebrew tonight over here on the right side of the page. I'm not going to explain it tonight. We'll read the Hebrew only, and then I'll explain it next week, okay? Starting in verse 13, it says, Vayomer Moshe El HaElohim, He Anochi va El benay isra'el va amarti lahem Elohe avotechem shalachni alechem va amru li shmo ma u mar Elo am you know what's his name what do we what 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 can we make of this what do we say uh verse uh 14 uh reads vayomer Elohim el Moshe and then listen to God's answer about what his name is, he says the famous three words, Ehe, Asher, right, which has been translated either as, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or something like that. Um... What does all that mean, right? And can we gain any insight from even looking at, say, the gr- grammar behind the Hebrew? I think we can. So God says to Moshe, Ehi asher ehi, Vayomer ko tomar Yisrael, Ehi shalachne Alechem. And then verse 15 uh, continues, "Vayomer od Elohim el Moshe, ko tomar el bene Yisrael. Adonai Elohe Avotegem Elohe Abraham Elohe Yach Veloh Yah Jacob shlag ni elechem ze shmi leulam veze zikhri ledor dor And that'll do it for our liturgy from the uh Tanakh specifically from the uh Torah. Let's turn to the um Apostolic Scriptures, New Testament uh, selection. We read Romans fourteen one through three last week in the English. Tonight I'm just going to read the Greek, and then we'll keep working our way through this passage since this is our uh, focal passage in our Roman study. Romans fourteen verses one through three. We're starting right over there on the right side of the page with the Greek. The Greek verse one says, dia Verse two says, Hos men pistue fagen panta ha de astenon lacana estie. Verse three says, Ha estion ton meestionta me exuthineto, ha de meestion ton estionta me crineto, ha theos gar auton pra syllabato. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's watch the short little video. It's about five minutes long, I think. And then after the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You guys ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. navi Let's look at our first question for tonight. Question. Should we celebrate the Jewish feasts as Christians? Well, the short answer is yes. I think Christians should be celebrating the feasts. After all, we looked at this a few weeks ago in a different video. Paul tells us that we should be keeping the feasts. Read 1 Corinthians 5.8. The feasts of Leviticus 23 are actually applicable to non-Jews as long as they've come into covenant with Adonai, the God of Israel. That makes sense. My premise is simple. Here's how it basically works: the Torah was given to Israel exclusively. The Torah is for Israel because God only cut a covenant with Israel. He didn't cut a covenant with any other nation on the earth. Agreed. Read Amos 3:2. My premise continues, Torah was not given to non-covenantal individuals from the nations. A person commits himself to God and then obedience to his Torah. So let's flesh this premise out just a bit. This arrangement actually limits Torah responsibility to those in covenant with God, specifically as it relates to special revelation. So, I wouldn't say that the Torah is for non-Israelites, right? My thesis hinges on the reality that a genuine covenant member joins the remnant of Israel via faith in Yeshua. And that's what makes him a genuine covenant member. So, don't be confused. I didn't say this makes him Jewish. Keeping Torah doesn't make you a Jewish person. So. To imagine that Gentiles keeping Torah in the time period of the Tanakh makes them Jews is a rabbinic fallacy, it's an anachronism. To be sure, if you look up a different version of the Tanakh, uh, the stone edition, it actually translates to the Hebrew word ger as uh, proselyte. But why do the Jewish translations opt for proselyte in these verses? It's because the prevailing view of traditional Judaism believes that the Torah is for Jews only. Thus, ancient theology shapes modern theology. Thus, whenever modern Jews find a non-Jew in the text-keeping commandments that are meant for exclusively for covenant members, they think that it must be because they're trying to become legally recognized Jews. And that kind of clouds their theology. Let's put it another way. Traditional Judaism doesn't believe that Gentiles can be covenant members without being converted to Judaism. So they don't think that the Torah is for Gentiles. In the understanding of traditional Judaism, all Israelites, past and present, are actually Jewish by identity. Of course I categorically disagree with this position. I don't believe that the Torah is a Jewish-only document at all. I think it becomes necessary for us to differentiate between the terms Jewish and Israelite, especially in in theologically uh, crucial arguments like the ones we're having right now. Basically it looks like this. All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites Are Jews. Does that make sense? I'm simply trying to enforce that Jews and Gentiles who are genuine covenant members through Yeshua are in fact Israelites, and that gives them Torah responsibility, actually binds them to it. The secret is in affirming the truth that Israel is a mixed ethnic group, right? She's not all Jews, she's not all Gentiles, as if anyone were arguing that position seriously. Instead, really, what is Israel? Israel is a bouquet. Israel is a bouquet. Look at all the people. She's a bouquet of Jews and Gentiles, both in covenant obedience to God and His Torah. When a Gentile joins Israel via Yeshua, he doesn't have to convert and become a legally recognized Jew first. And this truth was actually hidden from historic Jewish Israel down through the ages. They thought that ritual conversion was necessary for Gentiles wishing to follow God and his Torah. So the Torah was for Jews only in their opinion. But that's wrong. Let's get rid of that mistaken theology. Paul came to correct that. And he describes his his theology as the mystery of the gospel. That will do it for the video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name. I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students. I am so delighted that I have the opportunity to dialogue with people from around the world either via YouTube, through the comments or through these live studies with Skype or through the interaction that I uh, engage on engage in with the um, emails and questions that people send in. Lord, I don't have all the answers, but I know you do, and so I trust in you. I rely on your Spirit to help me understand the Word better and better as I veil myself and study it and apply it. I know, Lord, that you're going to continue to grow us up as we await the second coming of your Son, Messiah Yeshua. Lord, continue to protect us and raise us up and, and keep us in a place where we know that you are a loving Father. You're providing for us you're leading us you're guiding us you're raising us up you're building us up you're strengthening us our families our communities in the lord thank you that we know that your words are true they're trustable they're reliable and they form the blueprint for our living they are our everyday guide they are the way in which we are going to govern our lives and lead our lives and walk our uh walk out our faith Help us to be witnesses. Help us to um, share our testimony with those around us. Uh, Even if it's just a kind word, uh, compassionate action, um, let us be Jesus to them. Let us be um, uh, 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 Messiah to them. Um, We are your hands, we are your feet, like uh, Whiteheart used to sing, we are your people. Thank you for this opportunity. Continue to go with us through this week. Continue to um, um, uh, give us a... uh, um, a desire to connect with one another uh, through our social media uh, platforms and things like that and stay connected um, as we uh, continue to uh, fellowship with one another. And bring us back together next week, rested and refreshed, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. main. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer.